We have never agreed for our lands to be invaded or occupied. We have never consented to it, and we will never ever surrender or compromise. We occupied government buildings, we blockaded highways, and we talked about not just marching, but direct action to shut this shit down. Welcome to Indigenous Action, where we dig deep into critical issues impacting our communities throughout occupied America, or what we call Turtle Island. This is an autonomous, anti-colonial broadcast with unapologetic and claws-out analysis towards total liberation. So take your seat by this fire, and may the bridges we burn together light our way. Yate, and welcome to another episode of Indigenous Action. And today I'm really excited because we are going to be discussing Indigenous Mutual Aid. We are also part of the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network, so check out this promo for one of the other shows on the network. Silver Threads, Still Walking, Still Waking is co-hosted by me, Carla Bergman. And me, Eleanor Goldfield. This is where we interview long-term organizers and radicals about their watershed moments, what they've learned along the way, and how they maintain their hope on this path. Dreaming and building emergent worlds for a present and future anchored in justice and freedom for all. Because there are forks in the road, but they all lead us home to the fight, to the build. We've just marked one year of facing the pandemic of COVID-19, and as it's been widely reported, Indigenous communities have been disproportionately impacted by the virus. So today we're talking to some amazing frontline organizers who have been on the ground in their communities responding to this crisis. And before I get too far into it, Yate Sheikli Dashajene Torichini Shabashishin Aro Nakridene Dashanella Shama E Beethichi Aro Beethichi Dashache Zithijine Nasha Aro Kinslanishahuan. So, my name is Klee uh, with Indigenous Action, but I also organize with Kinslana Mutual Aid and IndigenousMutualAid.org. So, I'll be participating a little bit more in the conversation today. And I'm really excited to open it up to the guests that we have today. So, um, I'd like to just start by offering the space for introductions to Little One and Messiah. Um, if you want to introduce yourselves and talk about the project that y'all work with. Um, hello there. My name is Bluebird, or Little Wind, and I'm Northern Arapaho. Hi, I'm Messiah, and I go by Sweetgrass, and I am Afro-Indigenous, and we both live on the Wind River Reservation in so-called Wyoming, and we have been organizing and supporting our community for the last year, and we'll continue to do so with various projects, um, specifically around just making sure that everyone's needs are met um, in terms of water and food and PPE, 
and also to herbal medicines and healthier foods so that we can build immunity and just build our um, immune systems back up. And our next guest today is Han coming at us from Camp Red Sleeves Anti-Colonial Action. Hello, everybody. I'm Han. I'm with Red Sleeves ACA. And our main project right now is mutual aid, working with unsheltered folks in northern New Mexico. Our next guests coming at us from so-called Albuquerque doing some badass indigenous autonomous mutual aid is Bearcat. If you could introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Jen Bearcat. Um, like you said, I'm coming to you from Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, but I'm Shoshone and Paiute from northern Nevada. Um, I'm an autonomous organizer here. So basically I work with um, my community, various community groups and affinity groups. And we have been focusing a lot just on them unsheltered, unsheltered, um, providing mutual aid, engaging in mutual aid, I should say. So I'm really excited to dig into this because I think this has been an ongoing conversation um, for you. Listen, for you listeners out there, we are part of a uh, network called Indigenous Mutual Aid, and we've had a series of meetings and present some presentations and published a um, a statement that came out last summer, uh, just an assertion regarding Indigenous Mutual Aid and addressing anti-Blackness at the time, um, especially in the context of the George Floyd uprisings and the powerful Black Lives Matter movement uh, in support of our Afro-Indigenous relatives, as well as making sure that we're clear on what solidarity looks like. And you can find that at IndigenousMutualAid.org. But the first question I have for everybody uh, to open up the discussion is, what is mutual aid to you and why Is Indigenous mutual aid particularly necessary? Mutual aid to me is sharing knowledge, skills, love, and resources with intentions to create a reliable community based on a functional way of living rather than dependency. And I feel like Indigenous mutual aid has particularly been necessary because we're able to identify the root issues um, and we have a deep understanding and relation with the earth and other living beings making it easier to tend to the wounds and needs i feel like all of us here put our prayer into what we're creating as a collective and i've really loved watching it nourish and grow into what it is now um yeah i would just also add for me mutual aid is like a an approach and a way of living that includes all of life and um really is right there in the center while everything is happening and isn't trying to like move from a space of ignoring the reality of the situation that we're in but rather is really like tending to all that needs to be addressed and taking it like from this the core of the issues to me mutual aid it's all the things that were just spoken about but um it's also about 
building community resilience and um and ultimately it's about getting free it's about ultimate liberation for everyone it's interesting you use that term resilience because i hear that a lot as sometimes a buzzword in in activists or nonprofit circles and for me personally like i sometimes have this like weird feeling when i hear that term resilience because it's like this this idea that um we should be able to endure suffering um and is that like the condition state for survival in terms of mutual aid and what does that look like and so you know I, sometimes i have an uncomfortable feeling around that term yeah for me that that word is is about you know getting away from capitalism um i have all the I don't even know what word to use there, but I truly believe that we can be free of capitalism and engage in indigenous um, life away from everything that was brought here. And I see that as a, a long-term vision. Uh, mutual aid work actually came up on us this year or this past year. I feel like it was very organic and, um, and how things rolled around and, and in the people participating in it, um, I feel like there are the people in our communities that um, naturally kind of just get to work when they see things that need to be done. They don't like uh, wait around for somebody to ask them to do it or, you know, have to be designated or say that's not my job or anything like that. They're just people that, you know, pick up the work. Um, and I feel like that is an essential part of it because in order, like when we're thinking about what mutual aid is, um, we've seen, we've seen it a lot I mean, constantly this year with um, the nonprofits and things um, co-opting it. And even I saw some government agencies like even talking about mutual aid. And I'm like, no, you're not horizontal to us. You're not one of us. You are the government. You're not one of us. Um, You can't be mutual to us because we're not horizontal. Um, And I feel like that is a very necessary part of it. And I guess in the structure, in structure, structure kind of thing. Um, And I feel like that that's a, a has to be the spirit of it. it has to be the center of it because um there comes a time when you can't do it all for yourself and there comes a time when you have to let your community be there for you and that's the point of community and so just as much as it's essential to give to your community i think a, a lot of us organizers sometimes forget that um that it's also essential to take you have to let them um let them include you as you include them um, and that's, I feel like that's an important thing that um, I've learned a lot about this year. Han, I was just wondering how, um, how, how you guys got involved up there in northern New Mexico. Um, well, we had been doing, you know, some autonomous work with homeless folks wherever we were. Um, our camp moved around a lot. At the, and once COVID hit, you know, the people that, we were working with that were living on the street. Um, it just became very apparent that you know, the, the needs were going to be beyond our means. And so we just kind of kicked it up to where it is now over this last year. So it was, it was COVID, you know, smacking everybody down that, that uh, made us really activate, you know, I don't know what word to use, but just get moving like, into this kind of space we're moving in now. I think it's really interesting and important to address the sort of like idea of mutual aid having its day 
and the reference points being like Peter Kropotkin, like the anarcho-communist authors, you know, seminal work called Mutual Aid, A Factor of Evolution, um, which was written, you know, in the 1900s or so in a response to social Darwinism. And I think it's important to look at that sort of genealogy, but also recognize, and, and, and I don't necessarily like to make this extension because it's a, it's a very, you know, tired sort of observation from my opinion that, you know, Kropotkin did source his observations to inform his analysis by looking at indigenous societies, indigenous peoples, and, and you know, um, the way that non-human beings relate to each other in the environment. And it was an argument at the time. Um, and to me, I don't like personally, and I'm curious as to how y'all respond to that in relation to like providing your perspectives or definitions of mutual aid, um, which are very clear and powerful and obviously sourced from your communities, um, but how you relate to that. Because my personal response has been um, I don't need to have what I'm doing and our existence validated through a Eurocentric um, uh, text. Uh, that's, you know, it's not coming full circle. This is about actually recognizing and being who we are and embracing and embodying that in a way that restores those relationships that have been systematically attacked uh, through colonial violence um, and fragmented to the point where we have become so uh, dependent on those systems that we've been assimilated into, that have been shoved down our throats literally, that, you know, for me, um, you know, it's a crisis upon crisis. And it brings up the other point, and I think something that I, I want to hear more from y'all about that you brought up, Bearcat, was basically what mutual aid is not, because you're talking about nonprofit industrial complex and some of these other practices. So I'm curious as to hear y'all's perspectives on that as well. I think linking it back into the, the anarchism is going to bring up the um, the basic, like the failures of anarchism and how it differs from indigenous cultures and why it is a it is not an organic um, existing kind of development. And so there isn't that strength in there. And it's the same thing that we're, we're going to see again. Like, okay, because America has this thing where it thinks that civilization and progress is always better. It's always good. It's always more. And so, and they think that um, mutual aid or any kind of quote-unquote charity is uh, a sign of regression or a sign of um, lesser than. And so... Yes, when Corona is, you know, uh, what they think is going to be over, um, they think that's going to go away, too, because they obviously don't operate with the same viewpoint that mutual aid is ongoing and it is constant and ongoing. And it is a way to live in participation with your environment and with your people and with your communities and with your surrounding communities. And and that's where the stability is, is it has to be ongoing. Um but American Americanism is all based on individuality and uh, feeling like that con con contributing to your community is an option and it's not. Yeah, for sure. I, I like that a lot. Um, and that, that's what it felt like, you know, when, when COVID hit, you know, there was, we were already doing some things and we felt like we were doing everything we could. And then we just had to find another way. 
to do more. And uh, that was because our connection with, you know, the people that we saw all the time living on the street and, uh, and other community members too. So yeah, that, that resonates with me. Yeah, I feel like due to colonialism and capitalism reigning supreme in our society, there is this tendency to relate knowledge to academia and to studies and to books being made and for someone to do this study on this and that. And then that's how you learned about this new way of being. And um, I, I think that these academic spaces are just breaking the ice and just scratching the surface of being able to recognize that like a lot of the ways that we take action or make choices for ourselves, for our community are um, teachings that have been just embedded in our daily living. Um, And I definitely feel that way. And just thinking about like my childhood and the way that like I connect to the earth and to those around me and like all life around me and the way that that shows up in my organizing has always been something that was just displayed to me by just like spending like not even necessarily having to have a conversation where there's like a specific knowledge piece being passed down but just by spending time with my grandma just by being with my mom and seeing the way that she's relating I learned how to show up for my community and um have seen like a lot of that show itself in this last year as well as like throughout my organizing as a teenager and I think that like for a lot of people who don't have access to um their culture or like even just a mode of connecting with themselves there is a tendency to like seek and so I think that like there are folks who like have only learned about mutual aid from a book or that type of approach and then the way that they relate to mutual aid is always from that stance of being like oh how did you learn this like how did you get here how did you get this way or who taught you how to do that and um also like there's like the other side of that where there's like literally people who will only validate the work that you've done if it's from if it has like a stamp of approval from someone who's like a expert in this thing called life um and yeah I just think that like those like that conflict that occurs without like addressing the different way that people are getting to knowledge and the different way that people are like um unable to just like realize that sometimes like you just have a feeling and that's how you connect and that it's not a book or um I feel like is a big part of the issue around like always relating things back and being like, Oh, well, like we need to track this. Like, how did it get to this point? I'm glad that you brought up that it's like a feeling. Cause I think my response after doing a range of presentations, addressing like Kinthana mutual aid and the work that we've been doing as well to this question about mutual aid is, is that, you know, what mutual aid feels like is a, perpetual ceremony. And sometimes in our ceremonies, we have that element of a giveaway uh, where we are constantly giving and sort of showing that reciprocity and the generosity um, 
And there's always an element where the community comes together, our extended families, um, our relatives come together and support and participate, you know, sometimes with just the social elements as well um, for our ceremonies, which, you know, can be up to nine nights. And uh, that is part of who we are as Dene, um, which is our clan system, our relationality extends with our considerations of that kind of um, mutual relationality, not just our considerations aren't just for each other as humans, but non-human beings and the land. And I think that that, to me, when I, when I listen to a lot of folks, you know, especially um, this sort of like massive trend of mutual aid, that's something that always just like is a big question mark to me. It's like, what are we actually aiding and abetting? You know, it's like, is this mutual aid to like, further settler colonial societies too. Um, and, and I don't want to say that in a way that's callous because we um, have unconditionally been doing mutual aid with Kinthana Mutual Aid for all those most vulnerable. That's been our priority. And also within that, we've focused on um, unsheltered folks who have been extraordinarily neglected in our area. Our Part of our priority, because we are Indigenous-led and we are, you know, sort of spiritually based, informed in that level, has been for our Indigenous communities. And, of course, as many people know, and I mentioned in the intro, for example, the Navajo Nation or Diné, Bekeya, our area was hit very hard. You know, if we look at the statistics, basically was um, compared to U.S. states, the highest rate of COVID infections at one point during the pandemic um, and still has been, you know, we're still suffering from those impacts with a lot of extraordinary, um, devastating loss. And so um, there's so many narratives, though, that just are perpetuating that victimhood and sort of facilitating this idea that we should be cherry cases. Like, you know, here's your, here's your handout um, here. And I think a lot of organizers also being caught up in that. And for me, I want to be very intentional about what mutual aid isn't, or, you know, to sort of add to the, what mutual aid feels like, um, is that what mutual aid doesn't feel like is being there for yourself, your self-interests being put first. And it doesn't feel like just giving people handouts. It's about reciprocity and building. And it's a, it's, it's about the kinds of relationships that we build and restore and nurture um, and I, I really feel like like it doesn't feel like specialized groups just, you know, off doing their own, you know, relief work and interventions, which can be powerful. But at the end of the day, if they're just a special group that people feel disconnected from and it's not decentralized, as you mentioned, Bearcat, that horizontal component, um, then that doesn't, to me, feel like mutual aid at all. And um one of the questions that I had prepared was um, if you could talk about those specific issues with the nonprofit industrial complex and charity models of organizing uh, in the ways that your particular efforts are different and or challenging um, if you do challenge those models explicitly. Yeah, I can share. Um, yeah, one thing that I feel like, you know, everyone is something that I can pinpoint easily for people who might have a hard time understanding how destructive and problematic nonprofit and the charity model is, is like 
it's based on exploiting. It's based on like the trauma. It's always showing the trauma. I know for years we've like been able to flip through commercials where it's like all these puppies and they're just like, they look so fucked up and it's just like, it's, you know, and then there's the humans and the kids and it's just like the way that they approach everything is like from the standpoint of like, look, like look at all of this suffering that's happening and like, look at you and like what you could be doing to support. And it's like a very um, separate approach to tending to an issue that is literally like right in front of you, right next to you. And it's like, oh, like, let's just like take your dollar, like take your money. Here you go. Like, look, you feel bad. And that's like what mutual aid is not. It's not exploiting and pinpointing and like trauma porning the issue. It's showing up and saying, yo, like, we can shift this. And like, what are we, what type of conversations do we need to have? Like, who is actually like involved in this it's involving the community that like is being used to pawn like your money and the charity and all of this like it's always about what's going on but it's never from the perspective of like real people real problems that can obviously speak for themselves and tell you what they need and it's never really about making sure that people's needs are met it's more about this like perceived idea of like, well, I'm in a position to help. And so like they can't help themselves. And so I'm going to call the shots and make the decisions around what needs to happen, which is so destructive to supporting anyone. And um, yeah, and I think that I've seen that personally with like the work that we've been doing here and just like the way that people approach when they're overwhelmed instead of like being able to slow down and just like realize that like there's people who want to be involved. They just like call all the shots and take all the steps. And then a lot of the support or things that they think are support quote unquote, don't actually end up being supportive to the community um, because it's not what was needed because there was never that conversation. No one was ever invited to, participate and yeah it's a problem yeah that's that's a real problem um we see that here as well and that always seems to come with the idea that um the people that are most affected by um capitalists and capitalism and just all the colonial systems altogether that it's some moral failure on the part of the unsheltered person I think that goes along with that. There's that, like that judgment top down. I'm giving this out of my goodness to you who are, you know, lower than me and somehow bad or wrong or, you know, not making the right choices, that type of thing. I noticed that um, in, on engaging on the street level, well, since, and since I work autonomously here, sometimes I have um, the people that I work with around, but sometimes they're, you know, unavailable or they're, you know, out at a different um, action or issue. And so they're not always able to come and um, help me do distribute like distribution and stuff. So I do work with a lot of like the um, more org centered kind of uh, groups. 
um, we've kind of come to an understanding of where we all stand and uh, kind of just agreed to build around that. And uh, as long as we don't try to influence each other to change or, you know, just, just coming to coming, meeting where we're at and getting the work done, basically. So, um, well, I might not be able to get, you know, 600 backpacks out one, one, one day. Um, you know, I can still call people in and, um, involve them. And, uh, and I noticed one thing that was really, um, something that I feel like would be, we need to work on is, um, a lot of the people that are more org minded, um, and, uh, they, (laughs) A lot of them asked me, they have this, I don't know if this is a thing where you guys are with the orgs or you guys are, but they have this thing in Albuquerque that they're like obsessed with this thing called values aligned. And this is, it's actually a corporate um, policy or it's a corporate structural organizational structure. And basically where you align only with other, you know, corporations that are doing like work that you do. And so that way you guys can mesh well, right? But um, I feel like that's very um, self-centered in community work. I mean, I, I don't feel like that uh, that's useful at all for community work. Um, but like um, when I reached out to these these individuals that I know that are actually, you know, they do get on the ground regardless of um, that if if I agree with some of their politics or not. But um, I know that they do have areas that they tend to, and they do have groups of people that they um, interact with. And so, you know, when I contacted them, they were like, oh, well, you know, is this a, a values aligned group? Or or they started asking those questions. I was like, no, we need to get this stuff out to the people. If you're down, come through. If not, that's cool. And um, I, I feel like that refocused a lot of people on, on doing the work. But on a one-on-one basis with our unsheltered community here, um, I felt like I got a better response um, when you when – you, I guess when you make it okay for them to have wants, because a lot of times they uh, they are made to feel that they have to have a need, and the only thing they can ask for is the things that they need. And um, a lot of times they put them themselves last. And so when you say, "Well, what you need? What do you need?" they they'll they'll think of a million things that everybody around them needs before them. Um. And so when you set that, move the bar up and say, well, what do you want? What are things that you want? It helps them bring forward those needs and uh, feel, I guess, less guilty about it. And um, and that's honestly another thing, too, um, that I've seen a lot with mutual aid. I've seen a lot of people, of course, take advantage of, like, the mutual aid um, groups and stuff and, like, kind of just, you know, try to hustle them, <laughs> hustle people and have them, you know, paying bills for them and stuff like that. And, um I feel like there there is a, a time and a place where we that we can um, exist with our wants also, and I feel like that is a thing that we take away from our unsheltered people. Um, we limit them to their needs a lot of times, or we make them feel like uh, that's the only thing that they can ask for help with, and that everything else they need to get on their own, or you know they have to run on the bare minimum. But that's not that's not the truth. Um, sometimes they just want something. Sometimes it's okay to just want things. And I feel like that's something that, that's a care that goes into it. Um, getting to know those people on a personal level and introducing that that next level of care. Yeah, for sure. That's that's something that we try to do when we can. But, you know, there's a, there is a lot of suffering in the community. 
And addressing those issues sometimes does feel like just putting band-aids on bullet wounds. But, you know, trying to like work on infrastructure issues, sometimes people will want to do that in their camps and, you know, bringing people back to our camp to shower and, you know, just relax here because it's pretty rural where we are and uh, they can kind of just get away from things. But, you know, during COVID, um, that's been a little bit more difficult. But um, as far as things that people want, um, we try to ask and provide those things when we can. But, um, yeah, that, that takes getting to know people, like you said. You know, and it, it, it's a certain level of trust that they're um, showing us too when they feel comfortable enough to ask that question, you know, or to answer that question when we when we ask. So, yeah, thanks for doing that, Bearcat. Yeah, I think you bring up something that is part of this powerful strategy of survival that is the language of those on the street which is amazing generosity in most cases. I mean, of course, I don't want to paint a picture that everything is perfect and there aren't social issues and challenges um, that come along with a range of substance use issues and um, mental health issues as well. But there's that powerful generosity of people that's already built into communities um, of unsheltered folks for survival and that's something that, you know, because we, we, with Kinthunder Mutual Aid um, the, at Tullahawan Info Shop, which Kinthunder Mutual Aid is based in, we've been operating in this space for since 2007. And um, we've been employing, you know, the, the idea of mutual aid and solidarity, not charity, um, well before the pandemic with a range of different projects. And we sort of got to the point where we were organizing with the unsheltered community and communicating those sort of like wants, needs into demands as well and assertions, which I think is really powerful in relation to like actual solidarity and support and um, self-determination, which, you know, part of the biggest issue that we face here that I've observed is this, this overall dehumanization um, that is a component of what allows for the continued um, destruction, exploitation, and sort of like makes the, the, the desecration of our sacred sites permissible, you know, is that initial debasing or dehumanization. Um, because it, once you dehumanize somebody, anything is permissible and it's expected um, then, you know, that these people can be exploited, desecrated destroyed, um, disposed of. And so I think it's really, really powerful to understand that. And almost every, every indigenous nonprofit group that I've interfaced with and, and the service-based entities that are nonprofits here in this region have all been like, um, this is how we solve this problem. And almost, I would say not one of them actually asked and talks to and sources what should be done to address the issue beyond band-aid solutions for those without shelter experiencing homelessness and other issues in the streets. Um, they haven't asked them (laughs) and that should be the starting point for all of this. I wanted to ask if you could 
talk about um, what your groups have been focused on during this pandemic for this past year. Um, also, what have been the greatest challenges? And I think some of y'all have brought that up. Um, but also, I want to hear what have been the most effective parts of your organizing, or maybe what are, have been the most empowering um, you know, parts of that, or maybe there's a moment that comes to mind. I feel like our focus has always been pretty earth relation based, but in the beginning of the pandemic, we realized that we had to meet our community where they were at, which sadly is dependent on the few grocery stores that we have in the bordering towns. And so we focused on getting a hundred families in need, specifically grandparents raising their grandchildren and single mothers, everything that they needed to stay home. Um, from formula to diapers to food and hygiene products. Then we were able to help out an additional 250 families um, get their immediate needs met. Um, but we soon saw how much waste we accumulated while supplying and distributing those things. And so like one of uh, the most empowering moments, I think, was when uh, the tribe had wrote us a letter um, in a way threatening us to sue us um, because we had uh, just used our tribe's name um, in the, what was it, GoFundMe or in in our fundraiser, we had said, you know, uh, this is for Northern Apple tribal members, and they argued with us that they had a 501c3 who was um, going to be using uh, the Northern Apple tribe's name and that we needed to change it. And so that was like a really pivotal moment um, in our organizing because we were like, oh, yeah, like, you know, we actually have a vision of what we want to be able to create. And so we were able to refocus our energy into earth-based solutions, um, such as creating a community resource center where people can come to gain knowledge on the land and water pollution and the effects that it has on our bodies, while also um, giving them access to herbal solutions, um, to clean water and food, and a possible place to be in community if wanted. Um, we want to live in harmonious relation with the earth and all living relations. And our challenges, um, going back to just like not having enough support in our community um, here on the reservation and also in the state, um, and being co-opted and targeted by churches, nonprofits, and the business council. Uh, I don't know if Masai wants to say some more mm. on that. I would say like one of the, like, growing point as well as just the space where it was also like a challenge because it was just heartbreaking was just to see like how little like our community believed that there could be change mm -hmm. and like being able to like sit in front of that and like hear so many people be like wow this is really helpful and also just be like yeah but like you know I wasn't expecting any help or like, I was just going to figure it out, or we've had no food or these types of things. Um, and just like, not that reality that so many people in their homes are ready for the shift, but just don't see it possible. And really getting to like, 
sit with our elders and just like explain to them like why we hadn't been home and what we were doing and like because of them having connection to their elders and having a different relation to their land and their home and like watching development happen the way that they like responded to the work that we were doing was like so much more receptive because they were like oh yeah like of course like we need to be growing food of course like no one can drink the water like it's been that way for so long and so to have like um not only them be able to tell their stories that like for so long they've been trying to like tell people about and just be like, yo, like we need, we've been trying to like let people know that this isn't working. Um, and then to also be, be able to redirect that to the youth around us and say like, okay, who's ready to do this and see that people are like finally moving into that space. That's powerful. And in some ways, just to pinpoint an issue that y'all brought up is like, it seems like a real low and seriously problematic when churches are co-opting that kind of work because on one level, the church, you know, Christianity has been responsible for devastating our communities and stripping away our self-sufficiency and ability to be autonomous and destroy our cultural ties to the land and then to come back and, and then, you know, exploit on top of that, like po- poverty pimping, um, I guess that term, um, the, uh, the, the, the issues in certain reservation communities, um, and then to just try to co-opt like y'all's, um, powerful effort. That's absurd. Well, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, before the pandemic really started, um, I, I was getting ready to make um, ribbon skirts for this upcoming powwow season, right? So I got a whole bunch of fabric, and I was getting all ready. I had a, you know, a little stash of everything going. And then COVID hit, and um, nobody was going to be ordering skirts. And I was like, oh, man. And uh, so I, and I noticed that some people had started online um, making masks. And uh, I've, I've used to work in the, like, the community health care field, and so I kind of was familiar kind of with the, uh, the amount of barriers that was going to be needed for um, for everyday use for just basic people and um, the differences between like uh, the medical grade and, and, you know, just regular everyday grade. Um, and I so I started making masks. <laughs> I didn't really want to, but I was like, well, it needs to get done. And so, you know, that took a good three month chunk of my life where I was like, just grinding out mask after mask. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of masks. Um, and uh, let's see, after the first, I think it was about five days, maybe seven days, um, until the shelves were completely cleared of all material. There was no elastic. There was no materials. There was no sewing needles. There was no thread. Um, I had a little stash here, but I had to, you know, call my friends to go dig out their, <laughs> their little sewing kits or whatever and donate what they could. And and luckily, um, I have a lot of friends that um, had bits of scraps of fabric or donated sheets. Um, we we pulled together however we needed to, um, and we they they allowed me to uh, have supplies so we can keep making masks. And um, so that that was a, a really good thing that I saw and I felt personally, though, like um, 
there came a point in time because I, I live here in Albuquerque, but my people are from northern Nevada. And so all of I'm the only one down here. <laughs> I'm, I live by myself and I'm like by myself all the time. Um, generally, I like it like that because I'm just that's just how I live. But um, I always, you know, ha- have the option of going home. There's always that option there. And I really um, kind of took it for granted that it wasn't that it was there was safety in that option. Like I could choose it if I wanted to. But when our our state went into lockdown, and then they announced that they were going to be closing all the stores and all everything, and I was like, holy shit! And then we saw how people reacted to um, the stores closing and to- you know the toilet paper fiasco. <laughs> um, and I was like, man, if these guys are getting like this already, and there there isn't any real pressure on them yet that we could even see on a ground level yet. Things are going to get crazy when, uh, you know, when something real happens. And I was thinking, like, dang, what am I going to do? Like, I'm down here by myself. Everybody else could go to their families. Like, where am I going to go? Like, what am I going to do? And then I kind of felt, like, a lot of anxiety around that. And I really just had to come to um, – it really tested my, I guess, my my walk and my talk. Um, we, you know, been doing this work for so long about investing in your community and doing, you know, doing this and that. And, um, you know, it really came to the point where I was like, dang, I'm going to have to rely on my community. And that was a very uncomfortable space for me because I feel like um, we should always be fortunate or always be working to be on this other side where we're um, supplying our community and and helping and giving. But having to be on the other side where you're like, oh, shit. (laughs) And then it kind of humbles you and reminds you, um, it balances that out. So that was... uh, a hard lesson to learn, but a good lesson to learn. Uh, or I guess be reminded of. <laughs> it comes around every couple of years where, you, you know, I get reminded of that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, uh, I feel like uh, there was a lot of people that experienced um, that kind of thing, especially natives. Uh, being, being away from home, um, there's challenges. And that's, you know, when these kind of things hit, that's one of them. Yeah. So, I mean, it was... Getting started, I would say, was pretty empowering. And uh, what I mean by getting started is taking it from more of a, like, a this is what we do between my wife and I and, and a couple of the family members at times, and actually, you know, organizing in the community and, um, and trying to gather resources and meet people's needs and meeting people where they're at. So once we got the ball rolling with that, that was good. That that felt right. And um, and the hot another highlight would be just the relationships. You know, um, getting to know people on a, even a, a deeper level. You know, there was a more of a commitment on our part, and um, and and opening up happened when when you know, funny enough when. You start showing up consistently and reliably for people, you know, there's an affinity can grow there. And not everyone, you know, wanted to, you know, it, it happens at different speeds for different people. But um, that that would be one of the things that, and probably one of the challenges too for um, some folks um, who suffer mental health or just um, have trauma responses to, to things um so just learning how to um be with that with people and uh, not you know trying to like 
control an outcome, but just being consistently present with people where, wherever they're at. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that answers that question. Yeah, we, um, with Kintana Mutual Aid, we're really focused on regional support, like first local, then regional. Um, and I think that ties into our greatest challenge, which is, you know, the statistics that were sort of like really uh, projected out there that were part of the victimized, the victimhood narrative of 33% of the Navajo Nation doesn't have running water or electricity. And uh, we, we live in a food desert with only 13 grocery stores serving a population of over 200,000 people and an area the size of the state of so-called West Virginia. Um, and so like, like to me, it's like, those are things I grew up with. I, I, I didn't grow up like the, my, where my family comes from. We still have plumbing there. It's no running water, no electricity um, on the res. And those aren't things I ever viewed as poverty. So it's just like always dealing with that narrative, um, I think was a big challenge and trying to f- confront that, but also like link that to, um, the environmental factors as well. It's just like, you know, asking initially the question, you know, is, is there a reason that more of our people, you know, our community has been hit so hard, by this virus and you know aside from those social factors that were the statistics that everybody highlighted which makes sense um we can't ignore that you know being surrounded by massive coal-fired power plants including two in the four so-called four corners region the san juan generating station and the four corners power plant are combined two of the largest carbon emitters in the country. And so the air is poisoned there to the point where in the San Juan Basin, which is the area of the so-called Four Corners, there's a methane cloud that has been detected by NASA scientists the size of the so-called state of Delaware over the Four Corners. And that's because it's directly linked to resource extractive industries. Like the fact that we're, you know, one... We're a resource colony, and the Navajo Nation politically was established specifically to facilitate that to the point where in the 1940s, we were one of the largest producing areas for uranium extraction. And to this day, we have 523 abandoned uranium mines in the reservation lands and over 22 wells that are um, contaminated and closed by the EPA because of high levels of radioactive pollution. And they're not cleaned up. Uh, there's never been a comprehensive human health study <laughs> regarding their impact. And so people want to know why we're so devastated by this virus. We have to look at the range of factors overall, the imbalances that we have with Mother Earth as a whole. And yes, we have always been on the front line. We've been deemed a natu- national sacrifice zone <laughs> because of the um, environmental injustices that our people have faced. So to me, the, the, the challenge is, is that we were facing a multitude of crises already with capitalism and colonialism and compound that with the pandemic, um, with a lack of infrastructure and entities that were willing to address the um, needs of our communities immediately. Because every year, almost every year in our, some of our communities, 
there, there's been um, a crisis with some of the very remote f- families, particularly elders, who don't have even enough hay and water for their livestock. So there's a crisis point um, and, you know, a range of other issues that compound that. And so this is nothing new. It's just compounded that much more. And so that crisis was a big challenge um, at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, this is actually bef- before it really hit our communities when it first was reported in the small community of Chinchibato, which is um, where the the virus first was um, found, of course, brought by a Christian group um, on on our reservation community in Deneh Bikea. Um, uh, I sat and I just, I, I grieved for a moment. You know, I just, I let the wave of grief pass over me and I prayed and, um, you know, it was, it was really <laughs> emotional. I, I'm getting emotional on this podcast. What the hell? I have feelings. <laughs> um, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was very powerful because I was anticipating the loss. Um, and we felt that way when sacred sites like the San Francisco Peaks or Dakota Sleet were desecrated. You know, here's a site that is holy to 13 indigenous nations, which is integral. It's, it's our altar. It's where our medicines come from and integral for our cosmology and our prayers and our healing and well-being, which is being sprayed with 180 million gallons of treated sewage every winter for recreation. You know, we fought um, as hard as we could to stop that from happening because of the imbalance we knew that would happen in our inability uh, to to carry forward our prayers in, in their effic- efficacy. And so I look at that and I look at the, the struggles of our relatives on the street because it's, it's the same. What we've done to that, what we've allowed to be, have done to that mountain, what has been permitted by settler society to be done to that mountain has disrupted our ability to heal through this whole process. And so that was hard. And it still is hard, obviously, I guess. Um, but it ties into part of what has been empowering and effective is that people have been called to that action. They recognize the interconnectedness and how we need to nurture that. So part of that response, when we just put the call out, we need to organize and do something. So many people showed up. Um, And I think for some reason, just, one thing that comes to my mind is probably one of the most empowering and effective things was immediately when we, 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 you know, we're talking to unsheltered relatives because we constantly had people coming and going from Tullahone info shop. They would come and we'd tell them what was going on. And so uh, one day they're like, let's make some masks. Let's, you know, we can't find masks. Okay, let's get some material. And so we had this big party of unsheltered relatives making masks, filling our, you know, our wellness packs. And at that point we, we had been blessed by a gift of a whole bunch of sage. And so we were breaking them down and making the tiniest, you know, little sage (laughs) bundles from these bigger ones to put in each and every wellness pack for distributing for our unsheltered relatives. So it was like this, this collective moment where we recognize that this is, you know, our responsibility to step up and nurture that, connection the best way we can it's just like one of those things where like one day you're like we're out of masks like we were distributing at one point hundreds of masks every week um and we had um 
one person distributing thousands, you know, driving. We they'd get shipped to our space and they drive around the resin just distribute them. Um, and one day we had nothing, and literally the the po- the the delivery postal delivery came, and there was like a, you know hundreds of masks right there, <laughs> just as we were like, so like those moments, like somehow things connected and clicked. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I, I guess I would just wanted to share that. I wasn't expecting to go on a sort of longer rant or tangent about that. Um, but yeah, and, and, and I, I just wanted like appreciate the fact that the indigenous mutual aid network has been part of that connecting point and really helped to, um, by connecting with other indigenous folks who are in their communities, who have that same, um, not just political anal- analysis, but that that cultural grounding to um, respond in that way and connect and assure each other. And sometimes we would, you know, in our meetings, uh, you know, online, we would have little like moments where we just needed to provide that emotional support. And that was it. That was the meeting. And that was powerful. Like sometimes in the most profound ways so um i guess that's my expression of gratitude to you all for being part of that effort and um yeah just there's so so much i could share it's just like a flash right now for some reason i think that goes back to what um asaya was saying about you know it's it's a feeling that the mutual aid that's that feeling part that's integrated into it like you just know that what you're doing is right and even when like there's no masks left and you still got people there and (laughs) And then, and then the masks come, and that's the feeling. Yeah, for sure. That, and you know, also, you know, just sharing, you know, a bowl of soup and some bread with folks, and you know, the talk that happens, and you know, that's healing. You know, that's it's good stuff. So, yeah, I want to thank all of you too. You know, I've I've learned so much from y'all since you know we've been doing the meetings and and uh, communicating and. It's really enriched my life, so I appreciate you. We um, have some formal questions, I guess, to continue asking, <laughs> if you will. Um, so uh, what are your efforts focused on this year, so the remainder of the year? Um, and where would you like to see Indigenous Mutual Aid Organizing be in the next year and beyond? Honestly, I, I don't think... It- I'm not sure if it's your guys' ways, but it's our ways. Like, we don't um, really try to anticipate like that because that's like, um, I've, I feel like mutual aid is a blessing and you, we're not supposed to anticipate blessings or else, you know, might, might, that's like taking it for granted and, and then it might not come if you take it for granted. So uh, I, I kind of just don't want, I'm going to leave that there and just um, let it, let it be what it is. I can speak on that a little bit. Um, so for our project, we're um, working hard to build this um, hub of uh, abundance. And so we've been building these raised garden boxes and um, I put some seed down today and someone's coming over this weekend um, with some starts and sprouts that we'll be able to put in. And, uh, you know, we're talking about building a chicken coop and acquiring some chickens and a rooster and uh, being able to produce, you know, for the people and, and the long-term vision with that is um, to rely a lot less on um, settler systems and be 
more autonomous food sovereignty as much as possible. And, uh, and all the things that go with that, you know, saving seeds and exchanging seeds, and, you know, and inviting people to come participate in whatever way they can or want to. I wanted to share a little bit. I feel like right now for this next movement and motion, like yay spring, like the snow is melting, the river is flowing. And um, I feel like there's a lot of things that are moving all at the same time. And we're just like really in that space of wanting to bring back that word reciprocity of just really being able to um, start to show up for our community to be able to have a space that they feel like they not only can share their offerings, but also like be able to be held and receive and um, just like supporting and doing the really important work of like taking back the definition of what reciprocity is, because I feel like it's been really like thrown and like stepped on through the materialistic capitalistic approach and view of life and that like receiving is only through a tangible and the most important form of reciprocity to me and I feel like in community is the moments that we get to exchange and like being able to like feel that huge powerful energy of what it means to come together and um in that like that's also something that I feel like has been able to be just seen from a new lens through this pandemic because so many people have had to slow down in a way that they didn't expect or not be able to see the ones that they want to see or even just like the act of losing loved ones and having to meet them in a new form. Um, I think we're in this really pivotal pivotal moment that allows us to really um, deepen our connection to each other and share from um, just a more genuine space in regards to like our desires and um, yeah that a lot can shift and so the way that looks for us is yeah I feel like this year we're going to focus or we are focused on locking in a piece of land to begin creating our resource center, um, like the centralized community garden and also taking up space and planting gardens wherever we feel is necessary. We want to de- destabilize the dependency our community has on the U.S. government, tribal governments, churches and nonprofits. We want to empower our community to take action and become sovereign. And so like, just resonating with liberation and and that feeling of freedom. Sounds like a powerful manifesto for the spring and summer. <laughs> so with uh, with Confederate Mutual Aid, we we sort of put together an, uh, a strategic emergency plan, looking at a range of different scenarios. And so our whole, basically, our whole point is is building out our infrastructure with Telehawan Info Shop. And we already, with Talawan Info Shop, had addressed the orientation of the space being a source of conflict infrastructure. And as a mutual aid hub, it also sort of 
addresses mutual defense. And so we do, we've, in the past, we've done a lot of organizing and support for sacred sites defense um, and activated, uh, mobilized um, for other community struggles as well. And so I think like building out the idea of what that means more. So as far as like mutual aid and mutual defense, uh, we do have a garden actually tomorrow. Uh, we'll be um, setting up um, a meeting, one of our first meetings for our community garden space in the back. But also, um, as you all mentioned, we're looking at sort of proliferating that out and um, uh, stimulating the idea of guerrilla gardening more so in finding ways to um, determine how much acreage we might need access to to be able to sustain our efforts and same thing, be less dependent on running to corporations for all the supplies that we need for our communities. Um, and so we're, we're also focused on seed exchanges. We, we have had a seed library for some time uh, at our space. And so we're just, you know, revisiting that, looking at what we need to nurture um, to be able to grow effectively as we can um, the food that we could sustain, um, at least our outreach efforts, particularly for unsheltered relatives and feed them good, healthy foods from the land. Um, the infrastructure, we're, we actually have a huge project where we're building a, um, a commercial type kitchen um, at the info shop as well. And so that's a big project for our infrastructure plans, our, our nefarious plans. Um, so that's exciting and that's pretty much underway. We're going to be doing a big fundraising call for that soon. Um, as well. So folks jump in and support us at some point. It's one thing that we, we need to build into like mutual aid organizing is like one, the decentralized component that everybody should be doing it. Um, and two, like we should be proliferating that and looking at long-term and looking at it as a way of life, not just, um, you know, some specialized thing that we're doing in response to this crisis, but a way of building our power back, um, restoring, reconnecting and asserting that power in a way that's on our, on our terms. And to me, that's just like fully realizing that liberatory, um, uh, aspect of who we are uh, now. And we can do that. We have been doing that. You know, this, the system has failed during this crisis and that's not a surprise to us because that's how it wasn't designed to support and benefit us. And I'm not looking at uh, sustaining it or helping it recuperate itself. I'd rather look at ways to help it die um, these systems of oppression die and go away with this virus so that our people can live. I think something that has been so supportive throughout this last year and like has shown up different ways in my life in this body this time around is how ready the earth is for all this shit to die. And like all of these thoughts that we've been sharing here and all of these visions and all of these feelings, it's like mother earth is right there standing by our side. Like, yes, let's do this. Like, how can I stop like this, you know, huge shipping container from moving through my waters? How can I stop? Like, that was epic. Of, you know, like all of the different ways that, um, when you get that small moment to just slow down and listen, like you really do just see earth ready to bloom, ready to live, ready to be liberated and free from like these systems, from the way that like all of earth's children are relating to her as well. And it's just always that like 
that energy for me always activates so much inside of me to just keep moving and keep going when I like see the land destroyed and I'm just like you know what I see horses and plants and I see clean water and I see happy babies and it's going to be that way because that's what the earth wants and that's what a lot of these systems and a lot of these corporations don't understand is that the earth is on our side and that you know if this is a battle and if there is going to be a winning side like the earth side is going to (laughs) win definitely 100 percent you guys remember like the first month of the pandemic and all the animals started coming back out like like, coyotes taking over san francisco i was like yeah you didn't see that on the news there's all kinds of pictures Everybody was, like, scared of their houses. They were watching out the windows, and the animals were, like, all coming back out, reclaiming space. I was like, fuck yeah, let's do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there were bears <laughs> running right down our street. It was awesome. <laughs> it's de- definitely a time of prophecy and a time of renewal. As, as we're wrapping up this conversation, um, the other two questions we had were, uh, how can folks best support your efforts? Um, and is, if there's anything that, you know, you'd like to add, anything that we missed or anything that maybe was brought up during this conversation um, with this line of questions that you feel like you'd like to express more or address a little bit more. I think one thing that I saw in, in an urban environment, um, I live in a part of Albuquerque that they call the war zone. Well, they used to call it the war zone. The city is since wanted to um, repaint repaint this area's, uh, I guess, um, reputation. And so they, they changed the signs. They didn't actually change anything about, you know, the services offered here or or any, anything that actually changes. <laughs> they just changed some signs. But, yeah, it's the war zone. It's going to be the war zone until they make it not the war zone. Um, but one thing that we saw here a lot of, just, you know, on a ground level and just um, – Speaking with my neighbors, you know, one thing that um, we we kind of noticed was going to happen was, uh, unfortunately, there is a lot of um, of drug trade around here, and this means that there's a lot of people that are addicted, and a lot of people that are addicted to things that um, they 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 physically cannot just quit, in just stop using and be safe. Um, there's substances that you can't just stop using. <laughs> Your body can go in, you know, you'll die. Um, and so that was a major concern that we uh, discussed. How, how do we help them in that? Because we know that, you know, if they're overdosing, you give them Narcan or if, you know, <laughs> but if there's no cops to call, there's no Narcan there that can work because if they're not actually overdosing, their, their body is, um, you know, it's, what do you do then? And these are some of the questions we had to ask ourselves, like, and we really didn't know. And, um, and, uh, being the location that we're in, in Albuquerque, um, there is a large, um, we are, are a hub city for, for cartel. And so there was a lot of movement politically around with, um, what the, what the cartels were doing down in Mexico, what, you know, the violence that, was happening to people in Mexico, how they were readjusting in their villages and their cities and what this would mean to cartel power and how that would affect us. 
um, all, our um, crime rates and also just our everyday life because everything is a homeostasis. Everything has a balance and, and that includes cities. Um, and the reason why uh, when there isn't balance, there's danger. And so that's what we could sense. Um, these are some of the things that we had to think about and some of the things that we, you know, we just really don't know have have an answer to. But, um, yeah, I guess that would be, like, a more unique, um, I guess, aspect as far as, like, just living in an urban environment. Um, these are the things that we really have to think about. So how can folks best support your efforts? Oh, my efforts? <laughs> well, uh, my efforts, I actually have a need to, uh, my, my try back home, we are facing off with a lithium mine. Um, they that's proposed to be in our, our traditional area. And um, we have we have some work to do. So um, if you would like to donate directly to me, um, my cash app is J-E-N-N Bearcat, B-E-A-R-C-A-T. Um, yeah, and I also have PayPal. It's under Jen Orator Bearcat, and that's J-E-N-N B-E-A-R. Oh, wait, hold on. I always do that wrong. <laughs> Sorry. J-E-N-N-O-R-A-T-O-R-B-E-A-R-C-A-T at gmail.com. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that'll be used towards um, building community defense and direct action training. I think that one, well, the first way that I feel like you can support our efforts is also by, like, getting more involved in your community and also like sharing what's going on in your community. Like it's helpful for us to know what's going on because, you know, we're all connected and it's just nice to have like ins on what's happening on the ground on other people's homelands. And then also another way you can support is if you know someone with some land in Colorado or Wyoming and they just are ready to see it become something beautiful and want to release it back into the hands of the earth, we will gladly tend to it and make it something abundant for community. And then um, you can also send us funds. Um, we have a funly up that has like information about like our journey the last year and it's funly.com slash regeneration on the reservation and so i hope that everyone's taking care of themselves and and we also like to just meet new people so always down to connect and talk and that's supportive to me and this is really supportive to me all of you on this call well the ways we can be supported um, we have a link tree and so it's a link tree. It's L I N K T R dot E E forward slash capital R lowercase E D capital S lowercase L E E D E S capitals A C A. All our links are in that tree and there's, zines in there that we like and videos and all kinds of stuff it's a long tree so if you're inclined to support we would appreciate it um 
and also Camp Red Sleeves. Um, we're hoping to um, host some trainings here, and maybe Bearcat's going to come up here at some point. Some folks, um, just for like camping and just basically camp life and how to be an asset, like going out to um, an action camp. So, um, you know, having all the things and knowing how to set up your stuff. And some people don't know how to do that. So if you want a place to do that, um, hit us up and um, we'll see what we can do about that. I also want to encourage folks listening to this show to check out indigenousmutualaid.org and the directory that's there. And I just want to actually just state that there's a lot of really powerful work that's happening with Indigenous Mutual Aid, uh, that specific network that is not like something that we take selfies of, that we're not taking pictures of, and very intentionally so. That website is maintained in a way where it's just like, here's the groups doing the work. We're asking, here's a way that you can support by donating um, to this fundraiser. Um, And, you know, it's sort of like a bit of a contrast to like the, the sort of like endless environment of GoFundMes, which is sort of like something that to me personally, I felt like this weird reaction and the only best way I can describe it is just like that feeling you get like right before you're going to throw up of like all the GoFundMes that popped up after Sanding Rock, for example. Uh, and is sometimes it's just like, it's oversaturated and there's some powerful work that, you know, needs to be funded, but how do you find that? And so we try to do that with the network. Um, and all of those funds go directly into without, um, conditions, without any, um, thing aside from just making sure that people are actually doing the work and that's going to go out and benefit people beyond, um, you know, personal gain. And so, um, just recommend for people to check out support through Indigenous Mutual Aid, but also link up to those individual groups that are on the directory. Uh, and I also want to state like, um, and Confident Mutual Aid, of course, we're, we're listed on that network as well. Um, but I also want to mention that like, I think one of the best ways that you can support our work is by starting your own mutual aid project. Um, and there's a resource guide on that website as well, but, um, there's nothing really mystical about it. Um, you don't need like a degree and like some certificate or some like to go through some professional nonprofit workshop to then become a mutual aid worker. Um, that's not it at all. It's just about understanding responsibilities and doing things responsibly though. Like, especially in the context of COVID, um, there's a lot of amazing resources for the important protocols that we need to maintain to the highest standard if we are um, supporting those most vulnerable in our communities, particularly elders, um, regardless of what's happening with vaccinations and all of that, we still need to maintain those protocols because we don't want to have our support be a pathway of exposure for these communities. So I just highly recommend responsible, um, you know, responsible calls to action and organize, um, in your communities. Uh, and there's so many different ways to, to, to get involved. And it's just about, you know, picking a point, starting and finding even the smallest possibility and making that grow and stabilize and, and, and sort of proliferate that out as well. And so that's, you know, if you want to link up with the Indigenous Mutual Aid Network, um, that's definitely what that is for. So just want to encourage people to get involved that way uh, and decentralize this this shit because we're spreading um, this mutuality of what we're spreading is about relationships and it's about like 
asserting our power because um, mutual aid is not just about redistributing resources. It's about radical redistribution of power to restore our life ways, heal our communities and the land. Yes. More of that. So in closing, uh, yeah, if there's anything that you missed, um, we also, in our show, we started this thing, but I think we um, left it out in the last show. We have this little segment called call outs and shout outs. Um, so if y'all want to call any individuals, orgs or whatever, maybe tendencies uh, out, you're welcome to. You don't have to. You're not obligated to. Um, and shout outs, you know, something supportive or um, different groups or individuals that you feel like need to be uh, just just given that support. All right. I want to call out a behavior that I've been seeing a lot um, of people, of Native people going into other Native people's territory and basically setting up camp <laughs> without even talking to the any of the tribes in the area. And then also starting to call out <laughs> for more people. Um, yeah, I, I don't know where where that idea came from, but that's, I mean, don't do that. Um, and then also, uh, and, I, and I'm hoping that you guys are down for it, but I'm trying to go in on Chief Ladybird. <laughs> Um, her decision to uh, pair with a brewery and um, I'm not sure which, wh- where it's actually located at but um, the, I guess they commissioned her to do the artwork for a can of beer or a, um, I guess especially beer that they have and which a lot of artists have done that's true but this one in specific, I guess, they they somehow chose, I'm not sure if it came from her or from the company, but they have decided to donate $1 from every sale to an MMIW, uh, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Cause, or um, organization. They don't even specify which org it's going to. Um, at, personally, for me, when um, I'm looking at people doing fundraising or anything like that on behalf of an an order for MMIW, I want to see at least 80%, at least 80%, if not a hundred going directly to, and I want, and I want the org named or the family that it's going directly to. I want you to name them because I will check. And if I don't see that there, I'm going to call you out publicly because you're fucking banking off of our stolen sisters and you're banking off of a family that's hurting and it's not right. So I'm hoping that we can get into that in our next um, episode. Shout outs for you, Bearcat. No, I hate everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that for one minute. You can you can keep that facade publicly like you. up. You could you could you could you could keep that social media persona. All, you know, that's all okay. Right. Cool thanks. <laughs> so yeah, um, call outs. Yeah, people walking by, um, people like they're not even there looking at you, Española, right at the Walmart entrance. You know, you have all these nice things to say, Holy Week and all this other stuff. But uh, I see you. I see you looking down on people. And one day it's going to be you. So get it together. We're all here right now, and we need each other, so let's get right. And then, um, 
shout outs for all the homies in Española holding it down every day, getting by, helping each other day to day. You know who you are, Julian, Emil, Howie. I see you. I see your fierceness. I see your love. So thank you for being there. And uh, yeah, that's it. We have a call out. We want to call out Foundations for Nations and all of the churches who come into our communities and don't have any interest in getting to know our people and are coercing them into Christianity and bringing hundreds of people from out of state to not take the proper precautions and give handouts to our people in times of need. That is not what we need. And fuck you. And you will be hearing from us personally. And stop calling it a mission trip to our reservation, please. And and also our shout out. Well, I have a shout out for all of the youth, all of the children that are trying to figure out how to tend to themselves and um, find different avenues of healing from trauma. And just want to say, I see you. I love you. And we got this. And shout out to all the two spirits out there. I see you. I hope you feel good and, and loved and held during these times. And really excited to meet you someday. Hey, I, I, I thought of somebody I liked. Oh, okay. oh you, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to give a shout out to the Echo Park community out in LA. Um, how they stood up with they stood with their unsheltered community this week and they backed the cops out. They they marched them all out. They stood at oh, yeah. and boom, shit changed. I like that. See, that's all it takes to impress me. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Just just a just a low standard, right? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I got a quick one, too, for um, all the new crew people that have been putting in work with Red Sleeves. We appreciate you guys. Thank you all so much for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedules. I know you all have a lot going on and are so dedicated and committed. And I just want to just share this personally as, you know, part of Kinthunda Mutual Aid and the IndigenousMutualAid.org network. Um, that I've just seen so much more of your work than I know is out there publicly that you all share on social media and the stories, the experiences that we've shared, you know, are things that maybe not something that other people will hear, um, but I think in many ways should be celebrated. And so I just want to acknowledge that, that y'all took the time and there's so much immense, powerful work and passion built into everything that that we're doing and um, just want to wish you all well and encourage um, uh, each and every one of you. And especially those of you listeners who are looking at a starting point or trying to find a way to navigate in this world um, and maybe organize um, some mutual aid uh, just to, just to encourage um, y'all as well. So just want to thank you all for being here and taking the time. Thank you, Clee. Yep. Thanks for hosting. 
So you can find this broadcast on any of the usual podcast platforms, uh, including now the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network, or of course at our website, indigenousaction.org. You can also email us pictures of burning cop cars, any questions or topics you'd like to hear us go claws out on at info at protonmail.com. And we'll definitely be sure to integrate your questions and ideas into um, this pod, this broadcast. Fire that they can never stop!